Good morning. Well, it's great to be here the week after Easter, and uh, I am still kind of coming off that wonderful high. Uh, and it reminds me that whenever you get to the other side of Easter, if you're a student, your mind starts going to the end of the school year. Now, I know, I'm sure that all of our students are very dutiful and they pay close attention every moment they are in the classroom and doing their homework. I was not such a good student, to be truthful, all the way through my college years. I was more of a make it up at the end kind of guy. And so uh, I was known as the study break king, uh, which means that uh, toward the end of the semester, when it was time to study for exams, I would try to bless people with trips to ice cream shops and coffee shops and all of the rest. And then I would ask them for their notes from class because I had none. And so uh, if you ever wonder, why doesn't Chris give us notes? He has never been good at notes. Let's just put it that way. And uh, so I would borrow, I would always take out on a study break, uh, the most scholarly, attentive individuals in the class so that I could get their notes and review them uh, before the final exam. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it is filled with review. It reviews what it has already taught so that we make sure that we push it down into our mind and into our heart. So today, I had every intention to go all the way through verse 12, but instead, I decided we would stick with review of what Pastor Lee preached a few weeks ago before Easter, because it's a review of everything Paul has taught so far in Galatians. So, just so you're focused in, that means that we are going to focus on three verses, verse 4, verse 5. Verse 6, and as we look at those verses, I want us to consider them under the following headings. First, I want us to think about the, the isolation of self-effort. Secondly, I want us to look at the assurance of just receiving. And lastly, I want us to look at the power of faith. First of all, I want us to look at the isolation of self-effort. We really see that beautifully in verse 4. Paul says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Here, Paul gives us two different word pictures to illustrate what is true of you if you try to please God by your efforts, by how hard you work, by how good you've done, by what you say, or what you think, or what you've accomplished. Paul says, if that is your way of trying to please God, then you, one, he says, you're severed from Christ. That means you don't really have anything to do with him. You don't understand him. You're not in relationship with him. You are on the outside looking in in terms of a relationship with Jesus. And the second way he describes it is he says that you are cut off from grace. You are without grace. Fallen away from grace. I could almost picture, if you will, like uh, the, the, I think, one of the best Spider-Mans, uh, Spider-Man and the multiverse. You know, how many times they drew these beautiful scenes with Spider-Man falling and you see him drifting and getting smaller as he gets further away as he falls into the seeming abyss. And that's the picture. There's grace and then there's you getting further and further from it. 
Why does Paul use such stark language? Why is he saying, look, if you try to do things yourself, if you try to please God by what he calls here the works of the law, by your own effort, then you are bound for isolation because that is simply not the way we come into it. No way draws us closer to God. Paul says it drives you further from him. I thought as I was thinking about this particular point of one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis, it's a book called The Great Divorce. Now, for those of you who have not read it or not read it in a while, The Great Divorce is a book about a bus ride from hell to heaven. And the people, the passengers on this bus from hell to heaven are not really corporeal. They are not solid. Uh, They are more like ghosts. You can see right through them. And when they arrive into the heavenly realm, they are so thin, they are so non-substantive that they can't even bend the grass of that heavenly reality. And what I love about Lewis's book is that as the passengers are wandering around this glorious place, people come out from the celestial city, from the place of joy and and, uh, presence with God, and they come out to try to convince the passengers to go further in and to go deeper so that they might enjoy all that eternity has to offer. But it is fascinating how each passenger, each ghost, if you will, has a different reason for not wanting to move into that celestial city And one of my favorites is an interesting conversation that happens. uh, I'm going to quote it at length, and forgive me. These are two very rough characters that meet one another. One has made it to heaven. The other is just visiting. The one was a terrible person on earth, so much so that he even committed murder. The other was not quite as bad as that. And when they meet one another... It is interesting the conversation that ensues. Listen how Lewis writes it. Uh, the, The ghost says, look at me now, slapping its chest, but the slap made no noise. I gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it, but I'd done my best all my life. See, I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I would try an English accent, but it would come off very bad. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort I was. I don't care who knows it. It would be much better not to go on about that now, his uh, friend from heaven says. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. See, I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me, and I'm only a poor man, but I've got my rights, same as you, see? Oh, no, it's not as bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better, never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best. I've never done anything wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Forgive me for those English people for which bloody is a far worse word than it is for us. Who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. 
Then do, at once, ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. That may be very well for you, I dare say, if they choose to let in a bloody murderer all because he makes a poor mouth at the last. I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. If I had my rights, I'd been here long ago and you could tell them I said so. The other shook his head. You can never do it like that, he said. Your feet will never grow hard enough to walk on our grass that way. You'll be tired out before we get to the mountains. And it isn't exactly true, you know. Mirth danced in his eyes as he said it. What isn't true, the ghost said sulkily. You weren't a decent man and you didn't do your best. We none of us were and none of us did. Lord bless you, it doesn't matter. There's no need to get into it all now. I love that scene because in it is a scene that so many of us have had. And we've said, look, I I don't want grace. I don't want to need Christ. I want to do it on my own. I want to stand on my own two feet. I want what's mine by rights. And I love this scene because it's echoing the ideas of Paul. No, that's the last thing you want. The last thing you want is what you deserve, what you're owed. Why? Because what we deserve, what we're owed, is to be eternally separated from God. To perpetually and eternally fall from grace. To always be severed from Christ. No, we need to spend time on this verse because it reiterates the truth that we have been studying in Galatians. We are either going to try to do it ourselves in our strength or we will depend on God who has done it for us through Jesus Christ. It's simply that simple. I know we don't like binaries. We don't like an either or choice. But in terms of salvation, it's just that simple. You will either be determined to get what you are owed and you will get death and you will fall away from grace or you will accept something better, which leads us to our second point which is the assurance that comes from receiving. Notice Paul immediately in verse 5, he switches. And in verse 5, he summarizes the essence of the gospel. Listen to it again. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I love it. There, he is in a very short way, he is summarizing this good news. What is the good news? That it's not about what you've done. It's not about your effort. It's not about your work. It is about what God has done through his spirit. And what has he done through his spirit? He has changed us. He has changed us. He has caused us to see that we in and of ourselves are only full of rebellion and sin and error. That if we're really honest when we look in the mirror, that all we see is failure. And the Spirit kindly shows us that, right? I mean, it's like before you go, you know, on the, on the big date and you look in the mirror, it is always good not to look in a mirror in a dark room, right? You know, it's best to, you know, that's why some of those cool little magnifying mirrors even have a light built into it. Now, I'll be honest, I hate that light. I mean, I really do hate that light uh, for a lot of different reasons. But the real reason I hate that light is because it shows me the reality of my skin and my face and not the illusion that I like to keep in my imagination, right? You know, it, uh, you know especially as you, for those of you who are under 30, you're like, I love that mirror. 
you know, bless you. I'm glad you still love your magnifying mirror. But if you're over 50, that mirror is not your friend, right? Because that mirror tells you the harsh truth of staying out in the sun far too long when you were under 30. It uh, tells you the sad reality of uh, how your skin changes as the wrinkles begin to set in. But isn't it good to know the truth? You see, while we may not like the work of the Spirit, the Spirit is trying to tell us the truth about who we are in our mind and in our heart. It's telling us the truth of our need. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like a good thing, but that's not all the Spirit does. The Spirit shows us the perfect satisfaction of Jesus Christ. The Spirit enables us not to want to keep Jesus at arm's length, but want to draw him near. The Spirit enables us to love what we formerly wanted nothing to do with. The Spirit shows us the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. The Spirit, to use language from John chapter 3, enables us to be born again. Shorthand way as he thinks about all that he has taught the Galatians, he says it is through the Spirit, and secondly, it is by faith. It is by faith. Now, we've said this time and again, but we need to say it again. Faith is not a work, faith is simply receiving what someone else has done for you. Faith is the open hand that receives the gift. Faith is the mouth of the bird whose mouth is open solely for the adult bird. I don't know whether it's a mother or a father or whatever we call them in bird world, but it is the baby bird with mouth open that all it does is receive the nutrition from the adult. That is faith. Faith is simply receiving. And the Spirit enables us to say, I'll stop trying and I will just open my hands and my heart and receive what God has done for me. Paul says, when that is true of you, that beautiful gospel has become a reality in your life and the Spirit has moved you so that you see the beauty and glory of Jesus and you see what he is offering and you open your heart and say, I want that, I want that, please give it to me. Then he gives it to you. And what does he say? There is an assurance that comes from it. And what is the assurance? Notice how he says it. He says that we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Do you say, well, wait, 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 wait. I thought that if the Spirit changed my heart and I opened my heart and hand and receive what Christ has done for me by faith, that I have his righteousness. And you do. At that moment, you are seen as righteous in God's sight through Jesus Christ, not because of what you've done, but what he has done for you. So what does it mean that I eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, it means that God will secure our relationship with him, not just today and not just for the next 15 minutes, but for all eternity. Martin Luther has an interesting way of saying it. He says what this means is that we eagerly await our experience of righteousness catching up with our forensic or our uh, legal righteousness. In other words, when I accept Jesus Christ by faith, I am perfectly right as though I had never sinned before God. But you know what? My experience of it, and let's be honest, my wife's experience of it with me is that I still have a, 
a bit of a gap between my, my uh, legal righteousness before God and the way I actually treat her and other people. Okay, it's not a bit of a gap. It's like the Grand Canyon, right? You know, and the, the more we grow in our understanding of the grace of Jesus, the more we can see how far we fall short of it. And that's why we praise God and thank him for his forgiveness in Christ. But Luther says one day that gap won't be there. One day our experience of righteousness will be complete in that day when all things are made right in the consummation of all things. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know that that is called in the New Testament the first fruits. In other words, the guarantee, the down payment that one day our righteousness will be the same on the outside as it is on the inside. I like it that Paul uses this to me of Paul's comments in Romans chapter 8, a very similar passage in which he says, all creation groans to see the revelation of the sons of God. In other words, that this broken world with its floods and hurricanes and droughts and the pain and the suffering, all of that. Everything in the created realm is basically on its tiptoes longing to see the consummation of all things. To see the final page turned on the righteousness of God. Paul says that when the Spirit's moved in us and we've received Christ by faith, that we have an assurance that we will celebrate in that day and forever and ever. There is no doubt about it. We are confident. We have a confident hope. Now, I know that word hope is confusing for us, so I want to remind us of what uh, Hebrews chapter 11 says about faith and hope. Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, faith is hoping, being absolutely certain for what you can't see yet. That's what Paul is talking about. That assurance, it may waver as our own internal sin works against us and our confidence wanes, but it is just as assured it will absolutely happen for all those the Spirit has worked in and who have received Jesus by faith. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith, the confession that uh, our denomination holds to as a great summary of biblical doctrine, it says that every Christian will have times where our assurance goes bigger and gets smaller and that that's normal. But what is also normal is that we never lose heart because our assurance is based in the work of Jesus Christ that we have been able to receive by faith because of the work of the Spirit. And that leads me to our last verse to review. And that's verse 6. And I have purposely saved myself plenty of time for this. And so you're like, there are those of you who are like, oh, great. He's on his last point. And, you, and it's kind of like at the ball game, you start packing up your purse, right? And you're ready to go. <laughs> stay focused, right? We're going to stay focused. So what's the last thing? I want us to see the power of faith. I, I, I love this. 
I want you to think about the profundity, really the the, the radical nature of what Paul says at the beginning of verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, Paul's favorite way of talking about our current reality, that we are in union with Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit that we have received through faith. In Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. I want that, just let that sink in. For those of you who have, man, you have been a great soldier. You have been diligent to be here every single week. We have talked about the gospel of Galatians. And by the way, that doesn't give you any extra credit with God. You're only in because of Jesus. Just to reiterate, I'm thankful you're here. I'm glad you're here. Please keep coming. Don't think you're getting closer to God, you know, in the sense that he's for sure. But nonetheless, I sit here and think, wait a second, Paul, we're in chapter 5. How much ink has he already spent talking about circumcision? A lot. You can go back and read it. To be honest, uh, I think I mentioned this to you before, but when I last preached this, it was in 1996. I know that's hard to believe, isn't it? How can he possibly be that old? But in uh, 1996, I had someone walk up to me after going through Galatians and she said, look, I'm a nurse and I am a little grossed out by how much you've talked about circumcision as we look through the book of Galatians. And that's right. It's everywhere. So how in the world can the apostle Paul say uncircumcision or circumcision, it doesn't count for anything. You know, he's been talking about it the whole time. How can he say it doesn't matter? How can he say it as a Jewish man that it doesn't matter? Circumcision was the mark of being part of the people of God in the Old Testament. It was the sign of the covenant that was given to Abraham back in Genesis. It was the thing that was reiterated time and time again. And for those in Galatians, their whole emotional day, it doesn't matter. He says, in comparison to your relationship with Jesus Christ, it matters not at all. This is in the same vein of when he said that in Christ there is no male nor female, no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free. We are all one in Jesus Christ. In other words, sometimes it's helpful for us to have a little comparison. Now, sometimes in our life, comparison is a sin, uh, but in this case, it's not. And we need to compare that thing we think is most important, that thing we think gives us identity, that thing that we think gives us purpose in this world. And we need to ask, how does it compare to being in Jesus Christ? And I think you agree with Paul. It doesn't matter at all. And so for Paul here, he was dealing with people who were saying that being circumcised would make you closer to God. It would give you greater confidence, greater significance, greater purpose. And he says, no, it doesn't matter at all compared to being in Christ. But what is, is it in our life that we put in that place? It probably isn't, you know, this Old Testament sign. It might be our looks that we talked about earlier, looking in that magnifying mirror. It might be our money. It might be our security. It might be our family. It might be our children. It might be our hope to one day be married. What is it that we say, if I only had that, I'd have meaning, I'd have significance. What Paul wants to say is your looks, your money, your wealth, your spouse, your kids. It doesn't mean anything compared to being in Jesus Christ. Do we believe that? Or do we allow those things to grow in importance? 
But what does Paul say? Paul says there is a power in faith. And I love the way he says it. What counts? Only faith working through love. Now, why do I say the power of faith? Because this word here in our translation that is uh, interpreted working is from a Greek word uh, that uh, is uh, energeo. Energeo. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but if there are any ancient Greeks here, forgive me. Uh, It's the word we get energy from. And so I love to think of it this way. Faith energizes love. Faith is the battery for love. Faith is the, you know, the generator for love. Faith is the power plant for love. What is Paul saying? All that matters is that you continue to depend solely upon Jesus Christ, that you continue to hold on to that gift that is given. And when you do that, there is an energy that works through you to love God and other people. Now, we're going to flesh this out more as we continue in the book of Galatians, but I really want us to camp here. I want us to meditate on this. Here in the ancient uh, times, in the 16th century, there was great debate over how to interpret this little phrase. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. For in the Roman Catholic world of the 16th century, what they said is they interpreted it this way. They said, that's right, faith you know, only counts if we see it working through love. In other words, faith is built up by the loving acts or the works that we do. It is the works of love that enable faith to become more real, to count for something. And as opposed to that, the reformers of the Sioux, it's just simply not what Paul has been saying the entire book of Galatians. He is saying that it is not the love that actually increases the nature of faith, but faith is the only source for true and substantive love. It's the exact opposite. And if I've lost you, let me illustrate it this way. You know, how is it that we are right with God? The whole book of Galatians, Paul has said very explicitly, we are right with God, not because of what we've done but because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and that we believe that and receive it by faith. And then if that is true, he's going to tell us as we continue in the book of Galatians, then that will manifest itself in the way that we love God and love other people. It will manifest itself in the works that we do, the works of love. But what the world constantly wants to say is let's flip that upside down. Let's say that we, even though we may not have a chance for a relationship with God, if we work hard enough, then maybe we can have the faith that pleases God. And that's just backwards. And so Paul is saying we have to understand, because too often, even people sitting in this room who say, man, I agree with the bald pastor on all that theology stuff. I'm, I'm right there with him. We still believe that God likes us better when we do well during the day than if we have a bad day. We still think God probably would like to hear from us more if we, if we controlled our tongue better than those days that we don't control our tongue. You see, we still think that somehow our acceptance before God, or to put it another way, how much God likes us, 
is determined by how well we do. And Paul says, no, that has nothing to do with it. God likes us more, loves us, adores us, dances over us. Because when he sees you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ, and his perfection. He doesn't see your paltry attempts at imitating it. He sees Jesus. How much more could he love you than that? How much more could he love you than seeing Jesus in you? There is no more. And so when we make that mistake thinking that the better day I have, the more God likes me, we're actually reverting to what Paul says will actually make us isolated from the faith. Instead, he says, dive in, continue to believe, continue to look to Jesus Christ. One old Puritan said, for every look at our sin, take five looks at the cross. In other words, keep your eyes on what really matters, and that's Jesus. And you say, well, how in the world will that help me be a good friend, a good student, a good worker? How will that help me make a difference in this world? It's because when I keep my eyes on Jesus, I am looking to his strength and ability that works through me, through the power of the Spirit. I mean, whose power do I want at work in my friendships or in my schoolwork or in my work work or in my a relationship with a spouse or a parent or a kid? Do I want mine or do I want the work of God at play in that situation? Well, I want God and his spirit to work in and through me. So how do I do that? Keep my eyes on Jesus. Continue to trust in him. Paul says when we do to faith is like a battery that in and then enables us to love. Because then we are doing acts of love, not because we think God will like us better, but because we are free, because we, are, we know that we are completely and utterly loved in him. Think about it this way. Now, I don't know about you, but much like my schoolwork, I put off my taxes until this week. Yes. For those of you who have not been paying attention, if you're still sort of in that COVID mode where you don't know what day it is, your taxes are due on Tuesday. I think that's right. If you haven't done them, I'll leave that to you, you know, right? And so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my taxes. And, and I got to be honest, doing your taxes is never fun. It's especially never fun when you did math wrong at the beginning of the year and uh, your little TurboTax program tells you just how much money you owe as a result of that math error. It's very sad, very sad. But I'll tell you what would make it a lot less painful to write that big check or to let them debit it out of my checking account is if I had billions of dollars in the bank. Just side note, I do not have billions of, I have billions of dollars in the bank. I can use it for whatever I want. I could buy all of Colorado Springs if I want. How much will it bother me if I owe the government $1,000? If that might still bother me because rich people are like that, but I have billions of dollars. Okay. I know this is a weak illustration. I know that it is so small in comparison. But whenever we think about our motivation or the power to actually love other people, we often look in ourselves, and I'll be honest, you've got at best five bucks in your spiritual, emotional bank account, you know? And I know you're thinking, well, it's Sunday morning, Chris, I have 10, good for you. Wait till the ride home, right? <laughs> 
You know, at best, if you have five bucks, you've got five bucks. And loving costs hundreds of dollars. And you say, well, I better meet it out slowly. I better not be too nice. I better not be too generous. I better not serve too much because I'll run out. It's because you're thinking about it all wrong. Paul says, when you begin with faith, you realize that you don't have billions or trillions. You have zillions upon zillions of spiritual dollars because God is infinite and his power can work through you in ways you cannot imagine. But you must continue to look to him in faith. That is the only power to love. And so when you're in that situation and you are having to forgive that person one more time and you're sitting there gritting your teeth and you're thinking, I am so tired of forgiving this person. Ask, is Jesus? Is Jesus tired of forgiving that person? Is the Holy Spirit run out of grace for that person? Has he absolutely fallen short? Has his bank account gone to zero? Does he have the ability to work through you, kindness, grace, forgiveness, and service to that person? And the answer is yes. In other words, when I live by faith, I am tapping into infinite resources to express love to those I know and those I don't know. And Paul says that is the power for love. Faith is the power for love. Think about it this way. Have you ever done something for someone just because you love them? You didn't think about it. It was actually pretty hard. It took a lot of your time, you know, but you did it just because you love them. I've shared this before, but my favorite illustration of this is of a, a, a woman and her husband who poured greatly into my children, loved them, spent time with them, fed them chocolate, you know, bought them whatever they wanted. You know, it was great. They are, they are great. They are great people. They could have asked my children to set up a dinner for six on the moon and my children would have tried. I mean, they got them up front of people singing and playing instruments, which neither of my children wanted nor currently want to do. But they didn't even think about it twice. They did it. Why? Because they loved them. Their love was the power that enabled them to serve. And I'm telling you, as much as I like that couple, they really are sinners. And when you get to know them, they're not that lovable. I mean, they actually are pretty lovable. I, I do love them. If they watch my sermons, I don't want to offend them. <laughs> but compared to a God who would give his own son to take our place on the cross compared to the infinite love that would give the greatest gift, Harrison. And so here Paul says, look, I want you to have power to love, love God and love others, but it will never come from you. It must always come because of your faith, your clinging on to what God has done for you in Christ. So here's your homework. This week, here's your homework. I know some of you are saying, I'm like Pastor Chris, I don't do my homework. <laughs> you need to do this homework. I'm not going to say God will like you better if you do the homework. I'm just going to say your life is going to go much better if you do this homework. This week, maybe in the next hour, you're going to be confronted with an opportunity to express love through a word of kindness or encouragement or thanksgiving, to be an act of service. And you're going to have an opportunity. And your initial reaction is going to be, I don't want to say that. I don't want to do that. 
I don't want to put up with that. And then I want you to ask, this is your homework. I want you to ask yourself at that moment, where am I looking for the power to love? Am I looking into my very diminished bank account or am I looking into the infinite bank account of God's grace and power that I have access to by simply believing? When we say all of the Christian life is repenting and believing, this is what we're talking about. We're saying repent of trying to do it yourself in your own strength and believe in God's power working in and through you. This is the Christian life. So that's your homework. I'm willing to bet that 80% of you will have an opportunity to apply that homework in the next hour. Let's pray and get you to it. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness and your grace. And Lord, yes, these verses are a reminder of truths that we have already seen. But Lord, if the people sitting here are anything like me, they are needed reminders because of how often we want to depend on ourselves, how often we think that we can be right with you in our own strength or own ability or that we can live for you in a way that honors you based on our own bank account. Lord, forgive us and receive from us our praise and thanks for not asking us to do it on our own, but that you would do all that was needed for us in Christ and you will continue to do it. As we look to you in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.